1: Professor had argued that Wheaton's accreditation should be removed along with many other religious colleges because they require a declaration of faith. I write to defend not only Wheaton's college right to exist but my gratitude that it does exist.
0: Thanks for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lines for this week. Hi, I'm Paul Perot, And Gabe, you know, back in high school, I didn't plan on going to college. So although I did take the PSAT, and don't ask me how I scored, I really don't remember, I didn't bother with the SAT or the ACT. How about you?
2: I got a 970 on my SAT. Kind of embarrassing, right? Because most kids are doing better than that these days. I didn't have the prep course that a lot of people are able to take these days, Okay, why are we talking about SATs at the start of today's show? The guest you're going to hear from is delivered by the president and the CEO of the College Board. And the College Board is an institution that actually is responsible for the SAT. So if you've ever been frustrated about your SAT experience or you're in the middle of going through that grind with your child or trying to prepare them for the SATs, and it's just becoming too big of a deal in your life, where you're going to get to hear from the guy who's responsible for all of that, but also trying to innovate how testing like this can actually be a part of helping children gain access to better education opportunities for them, as well as to get access to the kind of schooling environments that are going to produce the best results for them. His name is David Coleman, and he came to Q to deliver a talk that really was more of a manifesto about what does it look like for us to think about the future of college and university education and the diversity that's going to be required in a culture that needs to celebrate and recognize the differences between a lot of different points of view. What I love about David is he's always been an advocate for us coming together and finding ways to find what we have in common. And then let's expand on that. Let's not celebrate all of the disagreements and all of the problems that we have. Let's find ways as human beings to accomplish things together. And he's doing a great job at leading the college board in that direction. And so part of the talk that's happening today was called patient pluralism. The idea that this takes time, but it starts with first principles. It starts with understanding that disagreement isn't necessarily bad. Number two, that religious education, the kinds of environments that Christian universities or universities that are driven by different ideologies are necessary and that they create the types of havens and spaces for intellectual development and discovery that cannot happen sometimes in other environments and that each student should have the opportunity to pursue that
0: before we get to today's talk, there is something special at Q that is meant to help Christian college students and even non Christian students meaningfully engage in some of the big
2: ideas that Q feels called to address. Could you take a moment to talk about this? We created a program back in 2014 designed specifically to target the college campus and to allow students to start to gather around big ideas. We call it Q Union, and it's been amazing to see this start to take place now on campuses, from Ivy League campuses and state schools also to Christian campuses, where once a year students are coming together in an evening format where they're hearing some of the best ideas from their fellow peers about what would it look like to advance good on our campus. And so those environments invite a variety of people, people from different points of view, some are Christian, some are not, but they're coming together to hear ideas about the common good. And we feel like the university is one of those places where this must be present, where it's critical that people are challenged to hear new ideas, invited to hear different perspectives and opinions, and then having the opportunities to discuss those after the fact. And so through Union, our program we're doing on college campuses, these students are able to form chapters and start a Q chapter that on a monthly basis gathers, listens to one of our talks, watches that, and then has a conversation that we help guide Around how to be smarter on different issues. And those are issues everything from sexuality and pornography to marijuana to how to be better entrepreneurs in our environments to solve problems and so on and so on. So, if you're interested in being a part of that or you're part of a college campus right now and you said, I've never heard of Q Union, I didn't even know this existed, well, jump in with us. Be a part of this. This is the future for us, is helping educate so many of the next generation on some of these important core ideas. So you can go to qideas.org slash QUnion. And when you go to that website, you'll learn more about it, but also you can fill out a quick form. Let us know you're interested in bringing this to your campus. Maybe you have uh, a relationship as an alumni of your school that you think, man, I'd love to help support something like this coming to their campus. Well, let us know, and we'll be in touch with you to try to see if there's some opportunities to partner on your campus. This fall, we'll be on 40 different campuses, and that program just continues to grow. So go to qideas.org QUnion. Now, as we get into this next talk, I just want you to sit back and listen to David Coleman, someone who's incredibly educated. He came from Yale University. He grew up and went to the public schools of Manhattan. And he's somebody who I think you're just going to appreciate the depth at which he views not only his role and responsibility, but sees the opportunity for innovation in the years ahead. So let's listen in to David Coleman on Patient Pluralism.
1: I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to join this very special conversation. I'd like to first talk a bit about my work and then talk about a concern that animates me, that brings me here to this community of faith. The College Board is a membership institution composed of our nation's colleges and high schools, as well as international members. We oversee exams like the SAT, PSAT, and advanced placement. In the five years that I have been president, though, we've tried to move beyond giving tests to delivering opportunity. For example, It was never right that test preparation for the SAT was costly and available to some. For too long, the College Board said, it's not our fault, we made a great test. But while it may not be our fault, it most certainly is our problem. The fact that the growth of the high-priced test industry happened in this country mocked the idea that exams like the SAT measure merit rather than privilege. And that's why when we redesigned the exam and built the new SAT, we partnered with Khan Academy to provide the best of test preparation free for the world. Five million young people have seized this chance, nearly half of all test takers and more than three times the entire test prep industry combined. And the good news is that practice is an equal opportunity accelerator. Our analysis has shown that students who spend 10 hours practicing improve substantially on the exam, regardless of race or income. But as we examined what happens to low-income students who work hard and do great on the SAT, we found that we had to do more to fulfill the SAT's promise. We saw that if a student is among the top 10% of scores, but in the bottom quartile of wealth in this country, in in that sense, they are poor, but they are enormously resourceful. These students overcome the visible and invisible barriers of poverty to score in the top 10% of the SAT takers nationwide. Nonetheless, half of them do not apply to a single selective college. Why? We wanted to understand why. So you know what we found out? We found out that if you're poor and you want to apply to college, the first thing you have to do is apply for a fee waiver to apply to college. So we went to our member institution, the colleges, and we said, look, if we've given you already a fee waiver to take the exam, Could you just waive the fee, trust us, and waive the fees for for applying to college? So we were able to announce that if you take the new SAT, you get four fee free waivers to apply for college. And the best day of my job during the year is when we send out the fee waivers to young people. One of them posted them on Instagram. He said, The College Board sent me fee waivers to apply to college because I am awesome. (laughs) He did not say, Because I am poor. The College Board is responsible for not just the SAT, but the advanced placement program. And we're proud of the work that teachers and students do in advanced placement every day. But still, we see barriers that concern us. For example, in our advanced coding course, between 1992 and 2012, in an entire 20 years, the percentage of young women taking that course stayed flat and below 20%. Less than one in five of the people taking advanced computer science were young women. Are you ready for this? In 2014, we gave the exam for AP Computer Science A, and in 14 states in our union, not a single black person or Latino student took the exam. Once again, we could say, it's not our fault. We're responsible for making the course. We're not responsible for who gets into the course. But if it is not our fault, it is most certainly our problem. These inequalities will build a wall of injustice into the next century. So. We decided we needed to relook at everything and we launched an entirely new course called AP Computer Science Principles which invited students to develop an app to solve a problem. It called on you if you're interested in the arts, science or community service. And I am delighted to share that young people across our country answered that call. The number of young women studying advanced computer science in this country more than doubled, from 13,506 to 27,395. The number of African Americans has more than doubled in one year, from 2,049 to 5,057. The number of Latino students has more than doubled, from 6,368 to 14,860. And the number of rural students taking the course has doubled from 4,898 to 9,997. After 20 years of no progress, it's about time. You may think it is incredibly exciting to lead an organization in which I see what unites America. In a shared struggle to do well in the, the SAT, to excel at AP, to go to college, get a job. And it is. But I come here today because I see a division that haunts us in our work in education, that limits us, that makes education less great, diminishes the human spirit, and too often brings us into conflict. I am talking about the divides between religious education and secular education in this country, whether in grade school or in colleges. I believe that both education and our country cannot be great without a more productive relationship between faith and education. A world where we not only tolerate the diversity of educational and religious institutions in this country, but cherish it. I have spent a great deal of my time as president of the College Board engaging with the religious community. In my first year, I visited Wheaton College for a gathering of religious leaders to discuss Reading Well and C.S. Lewis, whose papers are housed there. The idea for this conversation was rooted in my own religious upbringing. One of the defining moments of my young life was my Bar Mitzvah. And I learned then that re-examining a text can be a moment of revelation. At the Wheaton meeting, I had the good fortune of getting to know Phil Reichen, the president of Wheaton. And since then, I've spent a great deal of time with other evangelical and Catholic schools, whether the National Catholic Educational Association, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, or the Council for American Private Education. The College Board's ties to the homeschooling community have never been stronger. Based on what I have seen, I come to you today convinced that we need a new conversation that fosters a far deeper respect for religious learning. And this dialogue can only happen if we adopt a shared virtue. The idea I bring to you today is patient pluralism. In the rancorous times we live in, we must move beyond disagreement to the patient devotion that is required to learn and to grow. Patient pluralism requires three things. First, we must refuse to banish difference. Second, we must observe with love. And third, we must achieve shared victories for the soul. Let me begin with refusing to banish difference. My first opinion piece as president of the College Board was published by the National Review, and it was a defense of Wheaton College. A professor had argued that Wheaton's accreditation should be removed, along with many other religious colleges, because they require a declaration of faith. I opened my piece by saying, I write to defend not only Wheaton's college right to exist, but my gratitude that it does exist. I went on to extol the very special qualities of teaching and learning that I saw at Wheaton. And I ended that essay with words I continue to believe today. There are policies at Wheaton with which I disagree, but disagreement must not tempt us to banish difference, but instead spur us to look harder. We have institutions in the Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, and Jewish traditions that all live their identities in diverse ways and bring valuable resources to bear on students' academic, personal, and civic development. If students want to further both their intellectual and spiritual development at an accredited religious institution, if they feel they will learn best in that kind of setting, if they want to be part of a community that has a faith tradition, often not their own, they should have that option with federal aid. It's a wonderful thing and a source of strength that we have religious diversity among our institutions of higher education. As president of the College Board, you can count on me that I will continue to defend true diversity in education, which must include religious schools, as vibrant alternatives to secular ones. Patient pluralism means more than refusing to exclude those who you at times disagree with. It must move, in my judgment, beyond mere tolerance to observing with love. In my view, there are several distinctive gifts that are at the heart of religious education. One gift is productive solitude. So much of religious education is rooted in the art and practice of being alone. We need not travel as far as a monastery to see the essential link between solitude, contemplation, and prayer. Today, our young people need more than ever to practice the discipline of productive solitude. In our time, the technology of interruption has outpaced the technology of concentration. There is no great reading, no deep analysis in math or any other academic subject without a long time spent alone in devoted focus. In fact, the research on deliberate practice required for excellence in any field, whether in the arts, sports, science, shows that practicing productively alone is essential to achieving excellence. The digital world has changed none of this, made no shortcuts. It still takes extended concentration to do anything great. But the forces operating in our society have made it harder to pay sustained attention. And it is urgent for all educators to recover the deep knowledge and practice of productive solitude that our religious institutions have spent centuries cultivating. On a more personal note, my family and I keep the Sabbath holy. I am moved by Heschel's work on God's role in forging the architecture of time. And who can forget the call of Isaiah... In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Another gift of religious education is reverent reading of shared texts. At the heart of communities of faith is not only the book, but ideals of reading deeply, of attending with the full powers of the mind and the heart. Like many things, C.S. Lewis describes it best when he compares reading well to looking at a work of art. He writes, we must begin by laying aside as completely as we can all our own preoccupations, interests, and associations. We must look and go on looking until we have certainly seen exactly what is there. The first demand any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. In so many schools... Students are asked more about themselves and their preoccupations than the book they have just read. But an issue is not only how we read, but whether we share texts in common. Think of what many of our secular colleges have lost when there are no longer books that everyone has read. What is lost in the university when so little is universal? People forget in the most vibrant eras of the university there was an incredibly lively debate between faith and other perspectives but that debate is not possible when common texts like the Bible are lost. On a more personal note, I recently saw the transformative effect a shared text can have on a community on people from all walks of life when I had a Seder at my home. A third gift of religious education is grace and gratitude. Our religious training at once invites us to strive with all our might, but recognize the limits of our power. My job gives me the blessing of dealing with many students and their families who have earned academic distinctions of all sorts. But let me assure you that what is lasting is the grace and gratitude that makes a young person both humbler and stronger. They are less fragile in their success. We have all too many examples in our society of highly successful people who have hurt us all by taking still more, drunk on an exaggerated sense of what they have earned by their own hand alone. They are, as C.S. Lewis says, men without chests. If we are going to make education excellent, we must go beyond defending the right of religious education to exist, to celebrate and share its gifts. And I hope I've begun to do so here. Finally, if we want to sustain patient pluralism, We must achieve shared victories for the soul. And I believe there are lots of areas where the faith community could take a broader leadership role, but I want to offer you one today that may surprise you. I think we have to stop the madness in this country about college admissions and getting ready to get into college. The crazed pursuit of getting into college is hurting our young, and we can do better. Some of the worst days at my job are when families tell me that their children are busy. Young people need more time for faith, for family, for fun. But we have become convinced, yeah, indeed. We've become convinced that getting into college requires an endless resume. Being well-rounded has become a narrow obsession rather than an enlarging excellence. Today, there are 10 spaces to list activities on the Common Application for College Let me offer a modest proposal. There should be, at most, three. If you want to do more activities, go for it, but not to get into college. In fact, the secret to getting into college, and you might really want to hear that from someone like me, is to fall in love three times. And to be clear, I don't mean romantic love, but the kind of devotion so often celebrated in religious communities. I've already mentioned falling in love with an activity outside of class, discovering such a devotion But the second is love for a teacher, because only great teachers bring out the best work in students, and young people do need to learn how to seek out such teachers and to apprentice themselves to them. The third love students must practice is falling in love with ideas. People are so often caught up in defending the purposes of education, whether to get a job or prepare for college or life, that they can forget education's most intense power is to lose yourself in ideas. In sudden encounters with wonder, in conversations that awaken you. Today, the pursuit of college distinction can seem a triumph in authenticity. What if we had a healthier approach that fostered lasting love for young people? To pursue lasting excellence rather than fragile success. It is time for all of us in education to recognize that education is a soul craft Whether at a religious school or a secular one, so much is at stake. Only through patient pluralism, moving beyond disagreement to observing with love, can we share the best of what religious learning offers. Together, we can achieve victories of the soul. Education rooted in the best of the past that also readies us for the next century. It may not be our fault. The divide between religious and secular schools has been long in the making. But let us resolve today that it is our problem. It is our obligation to the students in our care, to one another, and perhaps even to God. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed hearing
2: David describe this vision. I mean, there was a couple standout points where the audience at Q uh, was clapping. There was a couple standing ovation moments where people were like, finally, somebody's saying this. I know one of them where he was responding to saying our young people need more uh, time with their family. They need more time for faith and for fun. That, that, That elicited quite a response. But on the serious side, it's just so encouraging to hear a leader in his position leading what he's leading to essentially say that it's urgent for all educators to recover the deep knowledge of productive solitude that our religious institutions have cultivated for centuries. It's, it's, I love just hearing a leader reflect back and understand the moment we're in and not to get so caught up in the moment that we don't recognize historically the way in which people learn. He also said we must move beyond disagreement and on to patient pluralism that is required to grow. These are the kinds of things that I just believe at Q we're trying to cultivate. It's a long-term view, but you can see there's leaders in our society, and, and David doesn't come from a Christian background. That's not his faith community. He's Jewish. And yet he understands that there's a value to these different communities existing, that there's more we're going to accomplish by creating space for this. And I think as time goes forward, this is an encouraging message to those working in universities, presidents of universities listening to this podcast, to be encouraged that there's leadership that sees that future that we're working to cultivate. And so as time goes forward, I hope more and more opportunities exist for creative ways for our students to be educated but also where faith can infuse education where that student decides that's what they want to pursue. And so it's incumbent upon us to learn that, to give vision for that, and to understand how long-term that's going to create a much better society. It's going to create space where we can hear multiple ideas, but we can trust that the best ideas will win in the long run. So I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the education space. If you're preparing for that SAT, maybe you got some tips today that will help you. But maybe you also know who to send the letter to if you're not happy with how your experience goes. And I hope you'll join us again for our next podcast in another week. I'm Gabe Lyons. I hope you have a great week.